The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Morning, we bring the book of Exodus to a close. Uh, we're on the last chapter of Exodus, chapter 40. And we'll be reading the whole chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around, and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil, and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furniture, so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all of its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Our great God, we know this morning that what we need most of all is not anything from you, but we need you. We need you yourself. Lord, I ask that you would give us freely of your spirit this morning. I ask for our kids downstairs and in the room next to us that they would encounter you this morning. Lord, we pray for PCC and other churches in this town that they would encounter you this morning. So Lord, meet us now in your word. Help us where things are confusing or hard to grasp. Help me as I try to articulate the beauty of your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Blaise Pascal was a brilliant 17th century French mathematician. And we actually um, still benefit quite a bit from his work in geometry and physics and uh, probability theory. Well, Pascal had come to faith in his early 20s, and then he just kind of settled back into the routine of life, as can happen. But eight years later, something different happened. It was an experience so breathtaking that he wrote it down on a piece of parchment and sewed it into his coat where it was found after his death. It said this, Year of Grace, 1654. Monday, November 23rd, from about half past ten at night to about half an hour after midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Certitude, heartfelt joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him. Renunciation, total and sweet. And though the experience was brief, it would have a continued impact for the rest of Pascal's life. Well, in the centuries before Pascal, and in the centuries after Pascal, Many, many Christians have had similar overwhelming experiences of the presence of God. And the places and the times are nothing special, but God descends in a unique way and everything changes. Maybe for an individual like Pascal, maybe for a church community, maybe for a whole village or region as a revival spreads. And of course, fire is a great word for that. Just like the thousands in Jerusalem at Pentecost would have agreed. Just like 
1,400 years before that, the Israelites in the wilderness would have agreed when the glory of God fell on this tent in the wilderness. So the book of Exodus, from the very first chapter on, it asks the question, can God really dwell with his people? And the answer is a resounding yes. It's a resounding yes here in chapter 40. It's a resounding yes even more in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's a yes that we, as the people of God, need to continually remember and rediscover in the midst of this wilderness life, just as Blaise Pascal discovered on that divinely appointed night. So let's think about God's presence descending here at the big conclusion of Exodus so that we can grow in an understanding of his presence in our lives and grow in eagerness for that to become an even more manifest reality for us. The main thought for today is that God has rescued his people from slavery and death so that they can enjoy his glorious presence. Our salvation, our deliverance, it was prefigured at the Red Sea and then was accomplished through the death and resurrection of Christ. What is it all for? So that we can enjoy God's presence, beholding his glory and his goodness firsthand. If we stop short of that goal, then we miss the point of it all. So first today, let's think about how does God's presence come? And to some degree, that'll involve a recap of some of the earlier events of Exodus. And then secondly, we'll focus in on the last five verses, and we'll ask, how can we describe God's presence? What is it like? What, it, what happens when it's here? So first, let's think about how does God's presence come to dwell among his people? And in verses 1 through 8 we see that it all starts with the plan of God. And we talked about this last week. We noted all that repetition. We see repetition again in this chapter. Why? Because biblical repetition highlights biblical priorities. Biblical repetition highlights biblical priorities. We are really, really, really meant to see that God has designated his own plan for how he will dwell among us. He is the architect of our salvation he is a designer of our being able to receive his presence. And so the first eight verses here just recap the details of that exact tabernacle plan that Moses had received from God as early as chapter 25. All those plans from, from the Holy of Holies outward. And he repeats all the details about the furniture, the highly symbolic furniture of the tabernacle. We've talked in previous weeks about how this is no random design. Every component of tabernacle worship points to Christ. The New Testament shows us that Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus is the great high priest. Instead of the lampstand, Jesus is the light of the world. Instead of the bread of the presence, Jesus is the bread of life. Hebrews says that Jesus' very flesh is the veil through which we access the presence of God. And the Gospel of John identifies Jesus as the place where God has tabernacled among us. But it's not just the place of encountering him that God has planned. It's also the time. Notice in verse 1, it says, A tabernacle is to be erected on the first day of the first month. If you remember, this calendar was given to Israel back in chapter 12. It was a new calendar for them as, as a free people. And it started with Passover. 
And now, just one year later, God has brought them out of Egypt, and the tabernacle is going to be raised in time for them to celebrate Passover, remembering that night when the blood of the Lamb protected God's people from judgment. So it's no accident that the, the presence of God coming down on the tabernacle would coincide with preparations for Passover. This was God's plan to point forward to Christ, because it's only with his sacrificial blood that we are really able to enter the presence of God. That plan... The timing was exact. The plan was laid out from before creation. First Peter says that this plan was established before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. Galatians 4 says that when the fullness of God, sorry, the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, to redeem us. So God has a plan for the time even as it's time for Moses here to enact this tabernacle plan in Exodus 40, that's all part of laying out the timing of the incarnated tabernacle plan in Jesus. But let's stop and ask a hard question. If God's reason for rescuing his people is so that they might enjoy his presence, and if God knows everything, why did he let the golden calf incident happen when they tried to access the divine presence in an unauthorized way. If you remember, this, this whole section about the God who stays, book ended by chapter 25 and chapter 40, um, where the tabernacle is finally set up, why did God permit the golden calf incident to interrupt that? He gave the tabernacle plans. Why not just have the tabernacle built? Another way to ask the same question is, if, uh, if I'm brought into the presence of God by union with Christ. And then it's promised that, you know, I am actually going to enjoy his tangible presence forever. Why is there a pause right now? Why is there an interruption in me being brought fully into his presence? Why couldn't he have just brought me to his presence the minute I was saved and spared me all this heartache and struggle? Why do I keep finding myself worshiping false gods of my own making and devoting myself to created things rather than the creator? Do you see the question? If God had planned for his people to dwell in his presence forever, why even allow the possibility of them to throw a wrench in that plan when we reject his presence through our sin? Well, we don't want to assume too much to grasp the mind of God, but just two things to note from this Exodus account. One is that God's plans needed no adjustment, right? He knew the people he was saving out of Egypt. He knew that their rebellion in the wilderness was coming, and that would simply prove their need for the tabernacle that he had already planned. And secondly, the, this incident of the golden calf, it does have a certain place and purpose because through it, Israel's eyes were opened to important realities. They came to grasp the seriousness of sin and its awful, awful consequences. They came to see the terror and the wonder of God's holiness. And it wasn't just any longer an abstract reality. It was something that had been applied to their own circumstances. And so failing like that showed them clearly the need that they had of him. And it was in the midst of that reconciliation that then Yahweh described himself for them as a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So maybe that self-disclosure of his mercy was an essential part of the tabernacle plan all along. 
I bring this up because seeing this trajectory is, is very good news for you and me. There have been times, there will be times when we fall into idolatry, sin, rebellion, false worship, whatever you want to call it. And we give our things to serve created things rather than the creator. And we, we take him out of the equation. We put something fleeting in his place. And all we want is the presence of that false idol that we've set up. And how do you feel about that? Do you feel grief about your sin? If so, that's very good because it's a sign that you're intended to enjoy his presence. But does your failure then derail his plan to bring you into his presence, to enjoy his presence? Not in the least, but like Israel in chapter 33. Repent, be sobered by a confrontation with his holiness, and then this valley will be the very pathway into his presence, making you ready for his presence. God's presence comes according to his plan. His presence also comes through the pouring out of his spirit. We see this in verses 9 through 15. God's presence comes by God sending his spirit. These verses are reminding Moses of the need to anoint the priests, and to anoint every little thing in the tabernacle with the anointing oil in, in order to consecrate them. And that word consecrate is a bit foreign to us. It means that after this ceremony, the person or the object that's consecrated would then no longer be just a table or just a man with fancy clothes. It would somehow be elevated and be part of the realm, the sphere of the divine. So this was a symbolic ritual, and over the rest of the, the, rest of, uh, the Old Testament, through the time of the prophets and the kings, it becomes clear that this anointing oil is a symbol of the Spirit of God being poured out on someone. That's what's really needed in order for the tabernacle to function, in order for the priest to do the job he's called to. And so when Jesus takes up his ministry, in the Gospel of Luke, he quotes from Isaiah to announce... Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, Jesus was anointed to usher in the presence of God. Well, as those in Jesus, we too have become the tabernacle of God. And we are called a kingdom of priests, which is why First John says we have all been anointed. We have been consecrated or set apart for a holy purpose by the Spirit of God. If you are in Christ this morning, then that consecration by his Spirit happened. Unbeknownst to you, it happened just before the presence of God came to dwell in your life. Now you may say, well... I don't feel very set apart or consecrated, and it's been a long time since I've really been conscious of the presence of God in my life. If you can resonate with that thought at all, take a look at verses 12 through 14, which also describe the, the priests washing with water and putting on holy garments. So this anointing oil was used just for the initial initial ceremony on the first day of the tabernacle or the first day that a new priest was on the job. He would be anointed with the oil, but then the washing and the putting on of the holy clothes, that would happen each time that the priest served. And uh, so, so there's an already 
and then yet again aspect to the, the priest's readiness to encounter the presence of God. And the same is true for us. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We've been consecrated. And yet the New Testament can encourage us to yet again today be filled with the Holy Spirit. And some of the same imagery is used, like washing. In John 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And then Peter says, well, you just better wash all of me. And Jesus says, no, you don't need a bath. You're already considered clean. Only your feet need to be washed. Uh, but how, how are we washed? How do we, are, are we maintained for um, God's presence? How do we make ourselves ready to once again enter in, so to speak? Ephesians 5 speaks of Christ washing his church with the water of the word. So we can consider this book a basin of sorts to keep us ready for the presence of God. And the imagery of holy clothes is used by the Apostle Paul, who said, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have disrobed from the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the Creator. Uh, Clothe yourselves then, it says. Clothe yourselves as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So by wearing clothes like these, we're ready to serve in the presence of God. Our being repeatedly washed and clothed in keeping with our anointing is described in Galatians 5 as walking by the Spirit or keeping in step with the Spirit. Is there any area of sin in your life that God has been putting his finger on and you've been ignoring him? If so, that's not a recipe for experiencing his presence. Open yourself up to him. Ask him to wash you and to dress you in pure clothes because your willingness to come to him needy and vulnerable like that, that could set your whole Christian life on a whole new trajectory of joy in his presence, as the Spirit fills you in a fuller way than you even knew was possible. Well, after the anointing, verses 16 to 33 show us Moses is setting up each component of the tabernacle, just like he was told. And we see that God's presence comes as God's appointed servant executes the design. Verses 16 to 33, God's appointed servant brings about the design. So, If we're tempted to think that we can somehow ensure that God's presence is going to show up simply by our own spiritual disciplines or or by viewing our washing and our our clothing as something we ourselves do as an entry ritual, well, this puts things back into perspective. God's presence can't come without the action of the one appointed representative who can approach God on our behalf. So there was only one Moses... For the old covenant tabernacle, there is only one Jesus who fulfilled the new covenant. He is the anointed one, the appointed one, who brings about God's presence in our midst. So, if you haven't received the free gift of salvation in Christ, if he's not the leader of your life, your representative before the Father, then you have no right to expect to enjoy the presence of God. Jesus is the greater Moses who completed 
the work that had to be done. So it's only through ongoing relationship with him that our own lives can be a tabernacle. And we talked last week about how if we don't approach God in God's way, then we can't expect to enjoy his presence. Hence the repetition again in this passage, emphasizing that all was done to the exact specification. Verse 16 gives us a general statement saying, this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. But then lower in the passage, there are seven specific statements that Moses did something as the Lord had commanded. Seven times. Oh, here's a little interpretive hint. It's no accident when things happen seven times in the Bible. It's putting an exclamation point on it. It's saying, look at this perfection. Look at this happening exactly as it should happen. And that's what we see here. Verse 19, about the frame of the tabernacle. Verse 21, about the ark and the veil. Verse 23, about the, sh- the table of showbread. Verse 25, about the lampstand. Verse 27, about the incense altar. Verse 29, about the altar of burnt offering. Verse 32, about the basin for priestly washing. In all of these matters, Moses did as the Lord had commanded. And so also, we have repetition regarding Jesus. We are absolutely meant to see him as the one who secured access to the presence of God for his people by accomplishing all of God's plan. John 4.34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5.36, The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John 17, Jesus prays, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And then John 19, having accomplished on the cross everything that was needed to set up the true tabernacle, Jesus said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus is the greater Moses who did it all just as the Lord had commanded. And even if you've walked with Christ for many years, if you long for a fresh experience of the presence of God in your life, remember that it's not something you achieve, even through penitence. No, it's something you can receive as a gift because the work was done for you and the way was opened. And it's through meditating on that good news of Jesus that we experience God's presence for the first time. And it's through meditation on that same good news that we enter into fresh experiences of his goodness and glory. In verses 34 to 38, the fourth answer to how does the presence of God come is willingly, even eagerly, Once the plan is completed by Moses, the presence of God descends immediately. It's as though the Lord just can't wait to come and live with his people. Twice, one right after another, in verse 34, then 35, it's repeated that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Yahweh, the one true God, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, he settled uniquely in a location that had never happened before. He had an address in the middle of the camp. And we know that his presence descended in a similar way on Solomon's temple 400 years later when that temple was built to replace the tabernacle. And it didn't leave. It stayed there with God's people until 
586, when Ezekiel chapter 10 describes the glory of God lifting up and departing the temple in judgment right before the fall of Jerusalem. Now, when the second temple was built, when the people came back from exile, there's no mention in those later prophets of God's presence descending and filling that temple. That would have to wait another 400 years when the Christ child was brought by his parents to be dedicated in the temple. And just like God was eager, willing, not ashamed to take up habitation among the slave band in the wilderness, so also he saw fit to be born in a stable and dwell among a poor and oppressed people. And he did that eagerly and willingly. And as you seek his presence for the first time or seek a renewal and a deepening of his presence in your life, know that God doesn't play hard to get. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a promise. And like we saw, it's, it's not mechanical. It is based on the freeness of his gift. It's not based on your fitness for it, praise God. But if you open yourself to his presence and knowing him is your true desire, then you have every reason to expect that he's going to respond to that longing. Luke chapter 11, verse 13 says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The problem isn't with his willingness. The problem is with our fixation on pretty much everything other than the presence of God. Well, now let's keep looking at these last five verses to ask our second question. How can we describe the presence of God? If our salvation, if the whole story of God is about reuniting sinful humanity with his holy presence, how can we describe that presence? What do we see about it in this passage? First, we see that this presence is hidden yet burning. The presence is concealed in a cloud, just as it had been in their travels. And that hiddenness is emphasized. The word cloud is used for the presence in each of these last five verses. But we know from chapter 13, and also from verse 38 here, that at night, they could see through the cloud, and they could see his presence represented as fire. The glory is concealed, and yet it's burning. We saw the same dynamic on Mount Sinai where there was lightning appearing through a thick cloud and then the mountain was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And this helpfully depicts for us how a God of glory, a God of such transformative presence, how could he be overlooked or, or even seem like darkness to others? Even though we who have known the presence perceive the brightness and the purity of the flame and the power and the undying burning as with the bush in chapter 3. Back in chapter 14, while the way across the Red Sea was being prepared, the cloud and the darkness blocked the way of the Egyptians. And yet at the same time, the brightness lit up the night on the other side. So his presence was facilitating the judgment of his enemies and the comfort of his people at the same time. And since God's presence is concealed, even though he's actually not far from each one of us, seeking him can feel a bit like pulling the sword out of the stone. There's a certain heart demeanor that 
will be able to receive it. Like we've said, it's not based on our own goodness. It's not based on our own works of spiritual discipline. But we can't receive the gift if we're not willing to slow down, shut out all else, to seek an encounter with his presence. This is true in, in small ways every day as we seek him in quiet moments. But it's also true in bigger ways. If we were to describe the people on whom revival tends to fall, it's usually among a group of people meeting regularly for prayer. Nothing notable about them at all. No great ambitions. No places they'd rather be. Often it's a group of students or transients who are, who are simply seeking God in humility. And they don't know any better than to just ask for more of God and to keep asking. And they've put themselves at his disposal. And then before they even realize it, they are metaphorically in the midst of the cloud. And fire from heaven has fallen just like it did on Solomon's altar. And maybe some of you have had in, intense experiences of God's presence like that. But then those days have passed. And now it can feel like you're on the outside of the cloud, seeing him only from a distance. To some degree, that shouldn't upset us because the white-hot presence of God is more than could be borne continually by anyone who's still in the flesh. It's good to remember that there is mystery about him, that even the glimpses we have had about God, they don't give us license to, to think that we've somehow figured him out, right? But at the same time, we desperately need those glimpses. What impact is he going to have in your life if you don't remember that our God is a consuming fire and a refiner's fire. So profound experiences of that presence of God remind us that, as one pastor put it, God may be near, but he is not cozy. God may be near, but he is not cozy. God isn't here to bring your slippers and rub your back. He's here to utterly transform you for your joy until you yourself shine with the glory of his making. And sometimes in our own lives, the presence of God can feel concealed. We know it's there. We know that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, but we don't feel the same burning or, or see the same brightness that we remember at different points in our Christian walk. But even if these experiences seem to go more quickly than they come, the memory of that burning continues like it did for Pascal. Even after the lightning and the flare is gone, God can use the remembrance of those times of wonder to fuel us in a, in a fresh way for fruitfulness, even years later. And, of course, we can pray for more glimpses like that. We should pray for more glimpses of God and for a more sustained pres uh, experience of his closeness with us. And when we do that, we're not chasing after a feeling we're not chasing after a phenomenon. We're seeking a person. And our church desperately needs people who have gazed into his brightness and who have unexpectedly been ushered by the Holy Spirit into the most humbling and exhilarating experience ever, the presence of God. Our churches often were just chasing after frivolities and, and strategies of man and, and trivial things not really understanding the weightiness of God who is right here, who is right here waiting to bless us with more of himself. 
So the presence of God is concealed yet burning. The presence of God is also staying yet going. The presence of God is staying yet going. What do I mean by that? God is with us, but God is also on the move. And we see this in the last three verses. It says, Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. And then uh, verse 38 concludes that this was in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So because God's presence dictates its own terms, the people of God can't just stay centered in a place. They have to be on the move. If the Israelites had stayed at Sinai, there wouldn't be anything there for them because God was moving on. Instead, they'd have to follow his presence into the promised land, and the same is true for us. We're not rescued from slavery to sin and death so that we can just settle down into a holy huddle until our days on earth expire. Our Lord commanded us, go and make disciples, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you hear that? Go, for I am with you. He stays with us, but in a way that leads and guides us to different challenges and endeavors for his glory. And this is why revival, a fresh outpouring of the Spirit on a large group of Christians, revival always leads to evangelism and missions because we long to stay in sync with that presence that we've beheld. And he is on the move. And we seek to join him in his work in the lives of the people around us. And sometimes... That might even mean that we physically relocate in order to be on the move with him more effectively. But even if it doesn't change you in that way, even if it doesn't lead you to some great transition in your life, you're still called to be on the move with God because our pilgrimage to the promised land, if we're obedient, it never really lets us get too comfortable. To quote from an old hymn, Jesus I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. Man will trouble and distress me, twill but drive me to thy breast. Life with trials hard may press me, heaven will bring me sweeter rest. Soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise, o'er sin and fear and care, joy to find in every station, something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee, Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? In other words, can you complain? No way, not with his presence going with us. So the hymn continues, Haste thee on from grace to glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal days before thee, God's own hand will guide us there. That's a sort of resolve for discipleship that comes into our Christian lives when we have basked in the presence of God, the presence that's staying yet going. In 1735, Howell Harris, who would become a leading figure in the Welsh Methodist revival, he was praying for a few hours in a simple village church, and a biographer says that there he experienced an overwhelming sense of the presence and power of God. That lonely church tower became to him a holy of holies. And afterwards he wrote, I felt suddenly my heart melting within me like wax before the fire with love to God my Savior and also felt not only love and peace but a longing to be dissolved with Christ. 
There was a cry in my inmost soul, which I was totally unacquainted with before. Abba, Father, I knew I was his child, and that he loved me and heard me. My soul, being filled and satiated, cried, It is enough. I'm satisfied. Give me strength, and I will follow you through fire and water. So notice that last impulse in Harris's prayer. He had this vivid outpouring of the presence of God in his life, and he recognized immediately that this couldn't mean that he was just to stand still and do nothing. It was preparing him for mission. It was preparing him for pilgrimage, for following God through fire and water, so to speak. Could it be that we feel so poorly equipped for mission and for simply moving through life's struggles with faith because we haven't sought the presence of God? His presence is on the move. It's here to stay, but it's also guiding us further up and further in. And that leads to our last observation. How would we describe the presence of God? It's overtaking our world. God's presence is overtaking our world. And we see this not so much in what the text says, but in what it leaves unsaid. As brilliant as this scene is with the glory of God descending on the tabernacle, we see that it's still an unfinished story. Did you notice a surprise in verse 35? And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. Well, wait a minute. I thought that this was the big conclusion of Exodus, that God was going to dwell with his people, and yet here we see that it's emphasized that even Moses, who at other times had been invited into the presence of God, now he can't even go into this tent for which he oversaw construction. What's going on? Is God going to stay barriered off within this small tent? It's like a friend who says, hey, guess what? I'm moving into the apartment right next to yours. And then he does, and then his door's always locked. He's never coming out. You're never going in. That's anticlimactic. Well, not really much had changed for Moses. He apparently still needs God's special summons and, and a unique accommodation just to be in God's presence, just like he did before the tabernacle was built. So while God moved into the neighborhood, we're meant to see that a barrier still exists between God and sinful humans. It's, it's kind of a unsatisfying ending. It's like a cliffhanger. It's like Han Solo is frozen in carbonite, which would, this would start to be resolved in episode three, also called Leviticus. If you look over a page, it's, it's a, a epic saga. You can't deny. Episode three, Leviticus. Verse, chapter 1, verse 1, Moses receives his summons to come before the Lord at that point, just like he had received special summons in the past. Now the Lord unpacks for him in seven chapters the details of how the sacrificial system is going to work and the Levitical priesthood. And, and it's through that that this barrier that still exists between God and his people would start to be navigated. Even though... There isn't immediate resolution. The filling of the tabernacle with the glory of God is still an exciting ending because it's an anticipation. 
It's a step toward the promised day when the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we today are closer still to that reality. One commentator says, right now, today, we live in a world into which God has entered in human form. Have you ever thought about that? It's stunning. We live in a world in which God walked and ate and spoke. A world in which Jesus lived and died and rose again. And we live in a world in which Jesus continues to be present among us through his spirit. So we end the book of Exodus with this expectation. The living God is among us and will be at work among us. God's presence didn't stay hidden behind a veil. It stepped out through the womb of a young Jewish girl. And then he finished the tabernacle work and multiplied his presence by sending his spirit to tabernacle within his people. And now his people are on the move with him, seeing that presence spread even more pervasively to every tribe and tongue and nation. And when the appointed day comes, on the first day of the first month of an entirely new existence, the whole of new creation will be the home of the presence of God. And then the theme that began in Exodus will come to fruition in Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. But then it goes even a step further and says they will see his face. God's presence will overtake our world. We're not there yet. And so for now, we keep looking back at the pattern of the Old Covenant tabernacle, and we look inward, where the presence of the one who tabernacled among us has come to dwell by his Holy Spirit. And we hope in a forward direction, praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And until then, give me glimpses through the cloud to your fire, because we know that God has rescued his people from slavery to sin and death, so that we can enjoy his presence even now. Let's pray to that end. Our majestic and holy God, the one who wants to dwell with his people, the one who has tabernacled among us, the one who is bringing about a cosmic tabernacle, that we will enjoy living in forever. Lord, we long for your presence. God, I ask that this morning you would overcome the weakness in us, the weak desires that seem to want everything but you. God, I pray that you would give us a fresh appetite for your presence. I pray that we would pray for it. We would long for it. We would feel our need of it. And I pray that you would bring revival into our lives, God. We ask this for our joy and for your glory. Amen.